Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us His Word, at the end of the reading, I will conclude by saying, this is the Word of the Lord, and we invite you together to respond. Thanks be to God. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 14, verses 1 through 17, and chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, She fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, the king. And on my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, if anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. And as much as the king does not bring this, his banished one home again, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now, I have come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, The word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. 
For my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. In chapter 15, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Kingdom kids are now dismissed to their classes. Well, thanks, James. When I knew James was doing the scripture reading, I gave him an extra long one. You're welcome, James. Well, welcome to the King's Church this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here. And this morning, we have uh, set for us, uh, the story begins really last week, but we're continuing the story of Absalom. The rise and will soon be the fall of Absalom. But this week, I want us to begin with this idea. Control. This is going to be like a, a group exercise. I want you to repeat after me. I am a control freak. It's true. It's true. We're here. We live in a time when control seems to be at our very fingertips. Everything we do, everywhere we go, we have this sense of control. More than maybe any other time in human history. I mean, if you think about it, we have things called remote controls. Uh, I can flip a light switch and lights come on and off. I control the light. I have climate control uh, in my vehicle, thanks be to God. And when it is working, it's a wonderful thing. But mine is not. And so it's getting a little hot already, so I need to get that thing fixed. We have voice controls now. Uh, I can just speak and things happen. You know, you can do little sequences in your house. Uh, Alexa, turn on the blah, and it'll start this chain reaction. We did this with our Christmas tree this year. Alexa, turn on the Christmas tree. And I tried to convince my kids that it was magic. And it almost is. Control. Maybe even cruise control. Some of y'all just cruise controlled on out here. Brothers and sisters with a Tesla, that car is just driving you around at this point. But we all live in a world where we believe we have a great deal of control. And that is really doing something to us, whether or not we realize it. One of the things I think it's doing to us is over time, with doing all of these different things that we think we control, we start to think to ourselves, hmm, if I can control the environment in this way, perhaps I can control people in this way. I can begin to manipulate people, just like I manipulate my environment around me. And this is a danger we can all fall in. 
I mean, there's entire industries that are based on uh, programming and sequencing things to manipulate you. In your pocket is a device created to manipulate you. And behind that device are people considering how to manipulate you. Maybe even closer to home. I try to manipulate my children. Sometimes uh, when the righteous means don't work, well, we tried it. Let's move on to something a little bit more practical. Maybe something that maybe is more effective in creating the environment, the control that I'm after. You know, this happens with my kids all the time. All of the time. They're acting a fool. And so I apply the proper, I Google, how to uh, biblically parent. And up pops, uh, these are the three ideas. I tried the three ideas, they don't work. And then I say, okay, I tried the scriptures, but now I'm going to put my own hand to this and see if I can do something beyond that. Or maybe it's with your spouse. The scriptures are extremely clear on how we ought to treat one another. But when that doesn't yield the response you're looking for from your spouse, well, maybe I'll try a different technique or approach. Maybe I'll try to manipulate outcomes. And what do all these things do? They push us to very surface-oriented things. Things appear one way. We like to control appearances at the heart of it. So this morning, we're going to be considering these things. When do you think it's time to take matters into your own hands? When God has clearly said that he will do it. When are you dependent on your own strength with no or little regard to what God says or thinks about it? Here's our main idea. We can surrender control to Jesus, who alone has power to bring about true reconciliation and restoration. One more time. We can surrender control to Jesus, who alone has power to bring about true reconciliation and restoration. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, Father, I pray that as we leave here today, you would loosen our white-knuckle grip on our lives. We are not in control. And we don't have the power to bring about reconciliation or restoration. So, Father, teach us this morning from your word what it looks like to surrender all to you. Father, I pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us by your spirit, and for our good always. We pray in your name. Amen. All right, let's get a running start. For those of you who weren't here last week, previously on the book of Samuel, there's a family fallout to say the very least. A brother turns on brother after a brother turns on sister. The brother takes matters into his own hand. This character's name is Absalom. Absalom turns on Amnon and says, well, Uh, You did this, therefore, I'm going to take vengeance into my own hand, and I'm going to murder you. The murder has been uh, accomplished. Then Absalom uh, goes to granddad's house. He's out. The end of chapter uh, 13 says that he fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. This is his grandfather. He goes to granddad's house, and granddad enables him even further. First, it was King David. King David should have been a good father and good king and brought justice to bear, but he didn't. Absalom flees for three years, and that's where our story picks up this morning, starting in verse 1 of chapter 14. 
Um, and the first, there's two ideas. It's the title, it's cute, whatever. Sleight of hand in the sight of man. First, we'll look at the sleight of hand. Joab, verse 1, the son of Zeruah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Joab uh, is this really interesting character. We don't know a ton about Joab, but what we do know, he's David's sister's son. He's his nephew, his nephew. He's also a general. He also, every time he shows up, he seems to be involved in bloodshed. So that should tell us something about Joab. And we don't really know what his motives are from the text. It's a bit surreptitious. It's a bit hidden. But Joab's motives could be that he knows that Absalom has great potential to be a kingly figure. He also knows that Absalom is an heir apparent to the throne. So maybe Joab is thinking here, well, if I get in the good graces of that guy, that will set me up for a bright and beautiful tomorrow because David is on limited time. But Joab also knows from verse 1 that the heart of David isn't about the kingly work. It's not about it. He's been diverted again from running the country, doing his role, doing his task. So what does he do? He takes matters into his own hands, and he tries to establish a reconciliation between David and Absalom that really is no reconciliation at all. Let's look at it, starting in verse 2. Then Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman. Now, when you read wise, don't think Proverbs, okay? We need to think garden, okay? This is a crafty and shrewd woman. This is like the witchy woman that the eagles sing about, right? It's a great song. And he said to her, pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning for many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab, a couple chapters ago, is copying Nathan's parable to David. He's saying, I remember a few years ago, the prophet David had the words of God put in his mouth, and he went out. And the parable produced this outcome. I wonder, maybe I can do the same thing here with David. The actor is acquired. The woman, the woman is crafty. And Joab plays the role of the Alfred Hitchcock, right? The Steven Spielberg. He's directing her. He's putting, he's giving her the script. These are the words you should say. And he's sending her to wardrobe. This is the wardrobe that you should don. And it says of the woman that she was wise and crafty. This shows up again and again through our narrative. Last week with Jonadab. Wise and crafty characters who are all too willing to do the bidding of sinful men. But we can expect something. The scriptures are wonderful and deep and rich. And when they give us these clues in the text as to what the character is like, we need to remember what's about to happen. This happens over and over. This wise and crafty language is taking us back to one who slithered in a garden. So we know that what's about to happen is going to do two things. One, be a temptation. And another is going to ask the question under the surface, did God really say? Did God really say that? So, the actress, maybe she had some acclaim. Maybe she had won several Oscars at some point. Anyway, David doesn't know her. Words, costume, here she goes. Verse 4. 
When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king! And the king answered, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, and my husband is dead. And your servants had two sons, and they quarreled uh, with one another in a field. There was one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now, right off the bat, David should be uh, reminded of another story. This sounds a whole lot like two brothers that were in a situation where one accidentally, by happen chance, killed the other. Except we know from that story and this story, this was premeditated murder. She's already twisting. She's already twisting it. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus, they would quench my coal and what is left uh, to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And the king says to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. It's basically a uh, be on your way. Be on your way. She persists. She leans in even further. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, on me be the guilt, my lord, and on my father's house. And let the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words, if it's not as I said it was, let the guilt fall on me. You're, there's no blood on your hands in this king, right? Then she said, please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, as the Lord lives, not one hair that will come back around of your son shall fall to the ground. The woman then said, please let your servant speak a word. She keeps pressing him and pressing him and pressing him. Please let your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. He says, speak. He keeps letting her talk. She continues, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one may not remain outcast. We'll stop there. There's three things that we see in the woman's plea. Number one, we see legal misdirection. What she's doing here is she's saying that a son accidentally killed his brother. Absalom murdered the dude. He plotted and planned this thing and saw it through. And Numbers 35.15 provided cities of refuge for people who were involved in accidental manslaughter. This was an accident. They go to the city of refuge, they figure out it was an accident, the guy comes home. That's what the woman's trying to convince David has happened. It's a legal misdirection. No such provision is made in the law of the Lord for first-degree murderers, such as Absalom. They were condemned to execution. David knew it, the woman knew it, Joab knew it. And Absalom knew it, otherwise he wouldn't have run, laced up his Nikes and got out. The second thing she does is she minimizes sin. And she makes this, she does this through a series of very, very familiar to us means. Sentimental manipulation. Appealing to his feelings. Appealing to his uh, feelings over against his conscience here. She says, we must all die. We are all like water that is spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. In other words, nothing can bring my dead son back. Why do we really need to worry about my other son? 
Why do we need to worry about these legal niceties of the matter? And then David seems to be getting a whiff of what she's up to. So what does he do? Flatters David. Flatters him. He's starting to maybe see a bit of half-truth here. And so she, she thinks, maybe I can paint over this with flattery. So she compares David here to being one who can determine good and evil. Which again, sounds awful familiar. You're the king. Surely you can determine in these matters. She flatters him, minimizing sin. The third thing she does is appeals to the nation. The point seems to be that by refusing to restore Absalom, that David is putting the entire nation of Israel at risk. Who will reign when you are gone? There's no heir here. But unlike her fictitious situation, Absalom was one of David's many sons. And we'll find out later in the text, Absalom already had sons. We don't need Absalom. Not at all. Her accusation is only superficially resembling reality. And David should know better. He should know better. The woman is attempting to pit God's justice with his love. His, his steadfast, righteous judgments with compassion and care. He's being manipulated by the woman. I like what uh, William Blakey says against this. Contrasting her approach to Nathan's a few weeks ago. It says this, Nathan's parable was designed to rouse the king's conscience against his feelings. Whereas, the woman of Tekoa's, as prompted by Joab, was to rouse his feelings against his conscience. If we, don't, if we do not live in an age where our feelings are pressed to compromise, our feelings are pressed to sin, our feelings are pressed, sentimentality, compassion, listen, all of those things are not bad things. But if they begin to rule us and control us, we are searing our consciences. So we should notice here that David, it's absent in the text. David takes no time to consult the scriptures. He takes no time to pray or call Nathan. You know, page him. Nathan, I got a quandary. No time. The wise woman was justifying the breaking of God's law in the interest of God's mercy. But the Bible never does this. What does God say about these situations? See, David's error is important for us. Very important for us. Because it's being, he's being deceived by crafty agents of Satan himself with their clever half-truths. And this is relevant for the church. Dale Ralph Davis says it this way, this chapter should haunt us, not to mention the individual, but the church in general. Believing or unbelieving, it's, it's possible that we have all the signs of external wisdom, appearing-wise, plans, strategies, accomplishments, and yet being utterly devoid of it. Utterly devoid of it. The only way we can be sure of the judgment to make, the way to go, is by humbly consulting God's word. In better days, you know, we, we all know, we've read it in the Psalms. David knew this. Psalm 19, he writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Or in Psalm 
119. He says, through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. David should have known better. He should have known better. But when he realizes that the story shifts in the woman's language from my story to starting to bring King David in as a character, he immediately recognizes that Joab's words are coming out of her mouth. Maybe this is because Joab had been petitioning him to bring Absalom back for a while. But they knew each other well. He recognizes Joab's hand in the matter. And he knows that he's being manipulated. And at this point, he's unable to even resist. So, he gives the woman and Joab what they want. Starting in verse 21, we jump back in when he's talking to Joab. He says this, Behold now, I grant this, go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servants will know that I have found favor in your sight, my lord and king, and that the king has granted this request to his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. Now listen to this. And the king said to him, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Bring him back, but don't bring him all the way back. There has been no reconciliation, and so there is no restoration. Joab and the woman deceived the king into false reconciliation, which of course leads to false restoration. It's all appearances, all appearances here. And the woman told David, which I think is the key to this section, the woman told David that God devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. And indeed, God has devised means of restoring outcast sinners. But it's not the way the woman suggested, by subjugating the demands of justice for the demands of love. For when God forgives, it is never at the expense of justice. And it is never apart from our own repentance. And we know this, brothers and sisters, there is no sleight of hand at the cross. There is no manipulation, only complete surrender. How are exiled sons and daughters who are guilty of treason restored? Estranged and alienated by our wicked deeds. We have to see it's not by a manipulation of the law, but by the fulfilling of the law. We have to see that it's not by a twisting of the word of God, but by the word becoming flesh and being nailed to a cross. It's not by a sleight of hand, but by a payment in full. The king restores sons by taking the punishment for their treason, treason on himself. There can be no restoration without justification. And David, tragically, doesn't seek to restore his son, just merely tolerate him, brings him in. So the path forward for Absalom was the same as David when he sinned against Uriah the Hittite. What did Absalom need to do? Repent. Repent. Come to his father. Fall down and repent. Turn away from this playing God and repent. There can be no reconciliation this way. So, they say they have peace, but there's no peace. 
And he's in Jerusalem, but not that close. A little sweeping under the rug. Thank God he doesn't sweep our sins under the rug. But he carries the shame of them to the cross. Nathan's story leads David to repentance. The woman of Tekoa story leads Absalom to rebellion. Which brings us to our second point. The sight of man. Starting in verse 25. Now in all Israel there was no one to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut his, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. Uh, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. And it weigh, he weighed the hair of his head, and it was 200 shekels by the king's weight. Wow. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, for she was a beautiful woman. Absalom's restored. Great. Everything's looking great. All is well. And so it seems on the surface. We're told he's handsome. Hyperlink, flashback, if we've been reading through Samuel together, there was another king who, as he was about to rise to power, was called handsome, and that was our old friend Saul. It says in 1 Samuel 9, 2, and he had a son, and his name was Saul. He was a handsome young man, and there was not a man among all the people more handsome than he. The externals, the appearance of the thing. But it's also interesting that the word used to describe Absalom is the same word used to describe in the previous chapter, Tamar. Whereas Tamar's beauty led to her destruction, though she was blameless, Absalom's beauty will lead to his destruction because of his vanity. It'll come back around, and he will literally get strung up by his hair in a few weeks. This reminds us of a major theme through the book of Samuel, again, the Lord does not look at externals like we do. We are obsessed with externals, with reconciliation that is no reconciliation, with restoration that really is no restoration, and now with the appearance of things. 1 Samuel 16, 7 puts it this way. The Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Manipulation always ripples out. Joab manipulates David. And David and uh, Absalom are about to have uh, another little manipulation. But Joab and David are about to be manipulated by Absalom himself. There's a great little scene. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'll summarize it for you in two little, uh, two little anecdotes. Okay, One, uh, Absalom's trying to get a hold of Joab. He's back in the city... Okay, and around, around town, uh, he's frustrated because he's in exile in Jerusalem now. Like, I was in exile over there at granddad's house, but now I'm in Jerusalem, and no one's treating me like I deserve to be treated. So he gets on the phone, and he calls uh, Joab. He says, Joab, come over here. We need to talk. Uh, Joab ignores his phone. Calls him again. Hey, Joab, by call, I mean send a messenger, guys. Okay, they didn't have cell phones. Uh, calls him. He He's coming. Here he comes. No, he's not coming. He ignored me twice, so he leaves him a voicemail. And the voicemail is this. He burns his field to the ground. This is the type of character we're dealing with, okay? Absalom is unhinged. And then he does what is now uh, classic in a, in a movie scene. Uh, you know the scene in a movie where someone knows that someone doesn't have the gall to kill them, and so they step closer to the gun, and they're like, shoot me. 
Absalom does the exact same thing through Joab. He says, I might as well be executed if I'm going to remain in exile. And David does not have the fortitude to either draw his son to repentance or render the judgment necessary. He says, accept me or execute me. And so David, again, caves in. He caves in, calls his bluff, and his hair just flowing. You can imagine it. Reminds us of another judge with hair who was building their own destruction. They're setting up a house of cards that was only about to fall down on them. Manipulation will crush you. Lies, deceit will crush you. Living only for the externals will crush you. But Absalom gets away with it, which is maybe the most haunting judgment of all. So David caves in. And Absalom is restored to the court. I mean, I can't really wrap my head around one of my kids killing another one of my kids and then being back at dinner without really addressing the problem. It's very awkward. I've had some awkward Thanksgivings, but that's up there. That has got to be up there. And Absalom looks the part, and he plays the part beautifully. Let's look at it in the beginning of chapter 15. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot. I'm back. And horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the gate. And when any man had a dispute, they come before the king for judgment. Absalom would call him and say, hey, from what city do you come? And when he said, your servant is in such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to them, see, your claims are so good and so right, and there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He looked the part, and he plays the people like fools. And he does three things we see here. He pretends to be kingly, right? I need to get a chariot, then I'm going to get some horses. The more the, more the merrier, and I'm going to ride through the city. I want everyone to see me. This is just an external manifestation of his massive ego and pride. I want to be seen as kingly. But the second thing he does is he positions himself shrewdly. He stands at the gate, and he does what sounds very contemporary to me. He has absolutely no power and promising, if I was in office, you know what I would do for you? I'd do something about this. And starts to steal the affections of the people away from the king, siphoning them, being divisive what he does. It's a tactic. He can just go around implying that he would decide in your favor. Everyone thinks that he's on their side. He's the people's guy. And usually, when someone is coming to a king or someone in the royal court, what would they do? They would kneel down. But instead, Absalom takes hold of them and kisses them. The people's... This is the, the, the modern-day equivalent of uh, shaking hands and kissing babies. You know? Where does this person need to be? They need to be with a blue-collar worker pretending to care. The third thing, portrays himself favorably. He portrays himself as the man of the people. 
Absalom is a smooth political operator and spin doctor here. The predictable outcome is that Absalom stole the hearts. And the language is vivid, and it's meant to haunt us, okay? In the same way, take hold, take hold. In the same way that Amnon took hold of Tamar, Absalom has taken hold of Israel. Same word. He, is, he does not care about Israel. He only cares about his power. He will do whatever it takes. The ends justify the means. And brothers and sisters, our method can never be sacrificed for our theology. What we believe to be true, the, me, the means matter, not just the ends. And there's a warning for us also, for potential leaders that we look up to, that we want to follow. Do we only look at the externals or what our ears tell us? They're so flattering. They always tell me what I want to hear. Are they only outwardly impressive? We can be so magnetized to the wrong type of leaders in this day and age. We follow people on social media, but have no clue for their character. Who are these people? We just hear their words and see their pretty faces with 45 filters. You know? This sounds so much like us. But the kings of Israel here in Samuel and the kings in Chronicles, they teach us that beauty can be deceiving. And that the applause of people, just like the rise of Absalom, is, in, is just eerily familiar. He enslaves the people. He does not love the people. As soon as he gets into office, what does he do? Makes the labor even harder. We'll come back to it. He becomes just like the kings of the nations, who use the name of God only when it's politically expedient. So how long does this go on? Uh, the text says that it goes on for four years. A whole election cycle. Sowing seeds subversively at the gate. <laughs> this is familiar. The public's opinion of Absalom has completely shifted. That's how short their memory is, right? Wait, wasn't this the guy who murdered his brother and then burned uh, Joab's field? And like, this is just, like, that's normal, I guess. Their short-term memory is, is in, in charge here. People are uninterested in their own history. They only want favorable outcomes. So they're manipulated. And it all leads to his rise to power. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 7, it says this, at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, he's like a lion waiting to devour a gazelle, please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord at Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel. As soon as you hear the sound of a trumpet, say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from the city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. His popularity is growing. And he comes to David, and he says, I need to go on a trip. Will you let me go to Hebron? Hebron is where David himself was, was made king. And now Absalom wants to go to back to the very same spot. 
What's interesting is he wants to go and pay a vow to the Lord. I mean, Hebron isn't that far from Jerusalem. He could have gone at any time. So it seems like David is almost naively accepting this as inevitable. He has to know that this is ridiculous. To pay your vow to the Lord and worship him, you're not going to worship him in Hebron because the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. Misdirection. Absalom lies to obtain the king's permission to hold a gathering. Absalom gathers leading figures. He gets the who's who, and they head down to Hebron, right? At the end of the day, do not mistake it. We are all sheep. They follow right in line, following him to Hebron. And the manipulation raises its head one more time. Flattering invitations bring the nation of Israel to Hebron to raise up the people's champion, Absalom. Absalom's actions are evil for a few reasons. There's a lot of them. But even when David had been anointed as the future king, he refused to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. And that is precisely what everything in Absalom's life is aimed at, bringing down, destroying the Lord's anointed. His actions are the culmination of God's word of judgment against David. Back in chapter 12, we're told that a sword is going to divide David's family, and that's coming to fruition here. Uh, Next week, tune in, David will be in exile. Absalom's rebellion is underway. Let's, Let's conclude like this. Without repentance, there is no reconciliation. And without reconciliation, there is no restoration. Everything here is happening on the surface. It's such an unsatisfying end to David and Absalom's relationship. But we may be grateful that God really has divided means for restoring sinners, those who are in exile. God neither fails to deal with the reality of our sin nor draw anyone near to himself without a true embrace of love. He doesn't say, come back in, but stay there. When a sinner is justified through faith in Christ, he may look to the cross, see that his guilt is completely taken care of, and no sin remains. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not only that, but that his sin is removed from him. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, or east, that's north-south. There is truly no condemnation. Since Jesus paid the debt of our sin, with justification comes the basis of our reconciliation, our restoration. And we have the grace to repent of our sins and the grace to forgive others who sin against us. As believers, we walk in the power of the Spirit in newness of life, and we are truly reconciled to God, not superficially, not just only on the surface. We don't need to control it or manipulate it. It has been accomplished. Our role in it is surrender. Surrender. I surrender all. All to thee, my precious Savior. I surrender all. I turn from my sin. I turn to Christ. Absalom would depart from David very, very bitter and angry, and plotting his vengeance. But how wonderful is it, brothers and sisters, that those who are justified and redeemed through faith in Christ are led to walk in the light as he is in the light, not in the shadows, hiding and lurking, waiting to pounce. We have fellowship with one another, and we can rejoice because we know that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So, 
we can surrender control to Jesus, who alone can bring about true reconciliation and restoration. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we are grateful that you love never at the expense of your justice. You are holy, holy, holy. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for the story of Absalom and David. Father, we can lay down our self-salvation project. Father, we can open up our hands to you. You are a good father who loves us so much that you sent your son to die for us and in our place so that exiled sons and daughters might be brought home and not kept at a distance, but called children. So, Father, I pray that in the, in the moments that follow, we would consider how white-knuckle grip we might be on controlling elements of our lives, manipulating outcomes, even trying to earn salvation, and we would just revel in the gospel. Father, we pray these things in your name. Amen.